Good morning. All right, that's better. Welcome to our first time visitors. If you're joining us for the first time, thank you for being here. We are certainly thankful that you have chosen to worship here with us. If you have any questions about what is happening here in the life of the church, Christ Covenant Fellowship, we will be more than happy to assist. You can ask any of our members, find myself or Pastor Tyler. We'd be happy to assist you going forward. Again, happy Mother's Day to the women in the room. We are thankful for each of you and the ways that you minister to us. Listen, if you have your Bible, and I hope that you do, turn with me to John chapter 3. If you are here this morning and you don't have a Bible, there are a few on this table back here to my left, which would be your right. Feel free to grab one if you need one. Uh, you can slip your hand in the air. One of our ushers will be more than happy to get one for you. In fact, that will be our gift to you. I believe everyone needs the word of God. Amen. So if you don't have a physical copy, grab one uh, before you get out of here. Again, this morning, our passage will come from John chapter 3. We'll look at verses 9, 9 through 15. And I'll be reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version. So what I want to do is read these verses, and then I'll ask God to bless our time through the preaching of his word. John chapter 3, starting at verse 9, and it reads, And Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you humbly this morning. God, we are thankful for this opportunity to fellowship together. God, we are here for a reason. Our purpose is to sing your praises. Father, I have an incredible task before me this morning to preach from your word. God, a, a task that I'm not qualified for. I could never preach to the glory that you deserve. So, Father, I ask that your spirit would rest upon me this morning that you would work in and through me to glorify yourself. Lord, help me present the text to present you first and foremost as glorious. And I pray that your spirit would be in this place this morning doing the work that only you can do, inclining hearts to believe, turning hearts to you. Father, that is my prayer this morning. Be glorified in our midst. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen, amen. So if you were here last week, we began our study in John chapter 3. We found that Jesus is having this conversation with this man named Nicodemus. So Nicodemus has come to visit Jesus because he's seen the miracles that he performs, and he has some questions. He wants to question Jesus about some things. So he comes to the Lord Jesus seeking answers. And of course, Jesus is more than happy to oblige this man. He has no problem entertaining Nicodemus's conversations. And Jesus says something during his 
time of discussion, he says something within this dialogue that we discussed at length last week, something that is eternally significant, something that is paramount to the salvation of sinners. You see, Jesus tells this man that before he can enter the kingdom, he must be born again. So Jesus has presented this brother with the necessity of the new birth. See, last week we covered verses 1 through 8, and we discussed the necessity of regeneration. This morning we'll look at verses 9 through 15, which continues Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. And what we'll find is that Jesus is really pushing Nicodemus toward one particular truth. This entire conversation is building toward a glorious climax. You see, this discourse will culminate in the most glorious fashion by Jesus putting forth the most monumental, life-changing truth that a man could concern himself with. That truth being the all-encompassing, eternity-altering love of God shown to humanity through his son, Christ Jesus. You see, this conversation really reaches its pinnacle in verse 16, which will be our text for next week. But however, Jesus begins to introduce that truth here in verse 15. See, Jesus has already given Nicodemus the truth about regeneration. Now he is going to tell Nicodemus the truth about himself. He begins to give Nicodemus a bit of insight of his purpose and the reason for which he came. And what we'll find out from these verses is that Jesus is more than a rabbi. He's not just a really good moral teacher. He isn't a man that's been divinely gifted to perform miracles. Jesus is something more, something infinitely greater, something more splendid, more glorious than the label of teacher will allow for. He is more than a rabbi. He is the son come to save. See, as we look at these verses before us this morning, we find Jesus continuing his discussion of the new birth. But Jesus also tells Nicodemus, look, there's something that I must do as well. See, Jesus has come to accomplish a particular mission, a mission that's been mandated to him. The mission of bringing dead men to life, redeeming the sinner, saving the lost. Just as regeneration is a must, Jesus points to the must of his crucifixion, the need for him to be lifted up. And see, with this proclamation, Jesus introduces a crucial truth here. He points us to the way to eternal life, and it is only in him. This truth really serves as a crescendo for these passages With every moment, with every text, we are gradually working towards that beautiful truth. So as we work through these verses this morning, I have a simple outline for us, three simple points, three headings for us to use. So if you're taking notes, these will be our three points this morning. Number one, the disbelief of Nicodemus. The disbelief of Nicodemus. Number two, we will see the dismissal of testimony, the dismissal of testimony. And number three, we will see the deliverance of the son, the deliverance of the son. And so my aim this morning is a simple one, 
My aim this morning is to clearly present Christ Jesus, to present him as the only way to this new life, the only way in which a man can be saved. I want you to see what Jesus is doing here in these passages, in these verses. He is inviting Nicodemus and really all of us to see him as Lord and Savior. And when we do, we find everlasting, eternal, abundant life. That's my goal for this morning is for you to just see that, to see Jesus that way. So let's begin. Let's walk through these verses together. Point number one, or heading number one, is the disbelief of Nicodemus. And we see that in verses 9 and 10. I'll read them again quickly. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? So after being confronted here with the necessity of the new birth, Nicodemus has one question. How? He says, how can these things be? We might better translate this question, how can this happen? Or how are these things possible? You see, Nicodemus' response to Jesus is one of disbelief. This response proves that he hasn't made very much progression since verse 4. Even after Jesus gives him this illustration of the wind and this further explanation through verses 5 and 8, Nicodemus still doesn't quite understand. He can't believe what Jesus is telling him. See, although Nicodemus was a great teacher, he proved to be a very slow learner. He didn't understand what the Lord Jesus was presenting to him. He was blinded by his unbelief. He couldn't fathom the things that Jesus was saying to him to, to be true. See, Nicodemus was a man who had been raised according to the traditions of Judaism. Not only had he grown up in this religion, he had come to embrace all that it taught him. In fact, Nicodemus as a teacher had taught so many others for so many years the conditions to entrance to the kingdom. Memorizing the scriptures, tithing the appropriate amount, fasting, dedication to prayer, all of these wonderful religious things, that's the way to the kingdom. But Jesus presents him with something very different here, a condition that he's never heard before. That there is a requirement, a birth from above is necessary before a man can enter the kingdom. So obviously Nicodemus with this truth and from his response, we see that he is shell-shocked here. He can't wrap his mind around the things that he's hearing. Number one, he can't believe that anything else would be necessary for entrance in the kingdom. Number two, he can't believe that the new birth is actually a thing that can take place. See, Jesus has utterly astounded this man. However, Jesus rebukes him for his unbelief. In fact, Jesus tells the man that he should know better. He says, you're the teacher of Israel. How do you not understand these things? So Jesus says, listen, you have this wonderful position as a teacher amongst the nations. You're recognized, you're established, you're renowned as a profound teacher with knowledge of the scriptures. In other words, you have no reason for a lack of understanding. Here Jesus refuses to let Nicodemus plead ignorance as a defense. He says your lack of knowledge here is really inexcusable. I mean, Nicodemus was the guy. He was a biblical scholar. He had meticulously studied the Old Testament for hours on end. In fact, he dedicated his life 
to studying the word of God. And he couldn't understand the concepts that Jesus was giving to him about the new birth. When I sit and think about this, I'm like, Nicodemus, bro, how are you perplexed by this? Have you never seen a life changed by the spirit of God? I mean, in all of your years of teaching, of ministering to the nation of Israel, you've never seen a man be changed by the spirit of God, repent, turn from his sin, and turn to the Lord? You've never seen that happen? Furthermore, Nicodemus, in all of your study of the Old Testament scriptures, have you never seen that God was sovereign over a man's salvation? You read the scriptures. Had you not seen that he's the one who brought his people out of Egypt and not because of anything that they'd done? That he was the one who turned David's heart to repent after he sinned with Bathsheba. Furthermore, that God is the one who promised to deliver his people through this Messiah, through this promised seed. It was never about the works of the people. See, Nicodemus had read the scriptures through the wrong lens. He didn't understand what the story, the story was that God was telling him about his glory and his sovereign authority over salvation. Nicodemus had studied all of these years. How can this be? How can this man be so ignorant to the things of God? Brothers and sisters, this really serves as a warning to each of us. The truth is, because you know the Bible doesn't mean you know God. Knowing and believing the Bible doesn't mean that you've come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. See, Nicodemus had a lot of knowledge. In his head, he knew a lot of things. He'd studied the word of God exhaustively. In fact, he had given his life to it. But for all of his knowledge, for all of the things that he knew, he had never come to truly know God. See, Nicodemus knew the Bible, but he was fundamentally untouched by its message. It was all in his head and hadn't changed his heart. Brothers and sisters, this is the danger of making our faith one that is academic. See, unfortunately, there are many who suffer from this same condition. They have full heads but empty hearts. Listen, as a pastor, this is something that I, too, must guard myself against. If I spend hours studying the text from every angle, learning it front to back, spending hours, weeks, years in God's word to prepare to preach, but it never changes my heart, I'm no different than this Pharisee. I'm no different than this teacher of Israel. Friends, we all must be vigilant about this. We must not confine faith in Christ to simply a set of theological ideas. Knowledge of the Bible isn't proof of your regeneration. Don't mistake biblical competency as somehow being genuine, saving belief. You see, the Spirit of God leads to more than simply scholarly knowledge it leads to saving knowledge, saving knowledge. See, Nicodemus had spent his life studying the word of God, but he had done, through, done so through his lens of legalism. See, even when studying the right things, he saw them the wrong way. See, this is all of us in our flesh, all of us apart from the work of the spirit. We're so blind. We're so misshapen by our sin and by the world around us that we obscure the written revelation of the word of God. 
We study the right things, but we read them the wrong way. That is why the new birth is required. That is why we must be transformed by a work of the Spirit. Otherwise, we could never come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. All of our time and study is is vain. Every gospel proclamation would be meaningless. It won't pierce our hearts. Every truth that we read within these pages does nothing apart from the work of the Spirit. Only operating in our flesh. See, that's why Nicodemus couldn't understand the things that Jesus had told him. See, the Apostle Paul talks about the lack of comprehension of a natural man as he writes to the church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 2, 14 says this, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. See, that's what Nicodemus lacked, was the transformative work of the Spirit. Despite his years of study, he could not understand. He was just a natural man seeing through natural eyes, totally blind to the divine work of the Lord and his own need for a new nature and the saving glory of the one who sat right in front of him. It wouldn't matter how clearly and directly Jesus communicated these truths without the spirit working in this man's heart, it all meant nothing. He couldn't accept what Jesus said to him. He rejected his testimony, which leads to point number two, the dismissal of testimony. We see this in verses 11 and 12. Jesus responds, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? See, here this conversation moves from a dialogue now to a monologue. From this point forward, Nicodemus has nothing else to say. It is only the Lord Jesus speaking from here on out. And here Jesus, for the third time in this conversation, he says, truly, truly. And as we talked about last week, this introduces or emphasizes a truth that is about to be introduced. It lets us know that what we're about to hear from Jesus is not only important, but it's trustworthy. It's true. And what does Jesus say to him here? He says, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Now, this is an interesting verse because you'll notice Jesus begins using plural pronouns. But why does he do that? Why the we? Why the hour? What is happening there? Well, from studying this text, from reading uh, several different commentators, there are different opinions about why Jesus does this. I won't give them all to you, but I'll tell you what I believe Jesus is doing here. I believe that Jesus is referring to his disciples and John the Baptist. And here's why. There are a lot of commentators that believe that Jesus' disciples were probably present with him while he's having this conversation with Nicodemus, which is easy to believe, right? That's not too far-fetched. So I believe that what Jesus is saying when he's saying we is that there are a group of individuals who can testify to who he is, who can testify to the reality of this new birth. John the Baptist, the disciples, they had met Jesus Christ. They had encountered him and been changed by him. So they can testify about these things because they know about these things. They've experienced the new birth firsthand. 
So that would make sense why Jesus is saying we. He's referring to this group. But I think Jesus also has another purpose for speaking this way. You see, if you go back to verse 2, here in John chapter 3, Nicodemus says, we know that you are a teacher come from God. So he's come on behalf of a certain group of individuals as well. See, Nicodemus introduces the we. So Jesus combats his we with a we of his own. He says, y'all know some stuff? Guess what? We know some stuff too. We know some stuff too. And what Jesus and this group knows is profound, soul-changing truth, as Nicodemus would soon find out. But I don't want you to get too hung up on we because Jesus says a lot more than we in these verses. Jesus tells Nicodemus that he is speaking of what he knows. He's speaking of what he knows and has seen. And he says, yet you do not receive our testimony. It's important to note here in verse 11, the you is plural. So when Jesus says, you do not receive our testimony, that is a plural you. That indicates that Jesus' rebuke is meant for more than just Nicodemus. It extends to a group of people. See, Jesus is addressing the Pharisees at large, but in a greater and broader sense, he's really rebuking the nation of Israel here. Jesus essentially says, I've testified to all of these things. I've shown you who I am, and you refuse to receive my testimony. That's a reminder to us that there's always going to be those who just refuse to believe what you give to them. The truth of the scriptures just won't resonate with them. So Jesus has demonstrated his divine authority. He's manifested his glory before these people. He's come as the incarnate word, but they won't receive him. They've rejected his testimony. John 1.11, so here when it says the word receive, you do not receive our testimony, it's the same word received in John chapter 1, verse 11, which says he came to his own people and they did not receive him. See, this is the reason for the indictment here. This is the reason for the rebuke of the nation of Israel. This is the group that Nicodemus belonged to. Jesus comes to his own people and they wanted nothing to do with him. They deny his testimony. Listen, a little bit of background about establishing testimony. The Old Testament told us how or dictated for the Jews how they were to establish the validity of someone's testimony. And you had to have two or three witnesses to corroborate your story, right? Just a couple of verses for you. I'm not going to read them. You can write them down and read them later. Deuteronomy 17.6 and Deuteronomy 19.15 explain that for us further. You can read that later in your own time. But the point was this. You had to have more than one witness. You couldn't just testify about yourself and that be considered to be true. So who testifies about who Jesus is? Well, let's turn over quickly to John chapter 5. Well, I'm going to read this quickly for us. John chapter 5, we're going to look start at verse 31. John 5, starting at 31. This is some testimony, some witnesses to Jesus. Verse 31, Jesus says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true, but there's another who bears witness about me. I know that the testimony he bears about me is true. You sent to John, here he's referring to John the Baptist, 
and he has borne witness to the truth. So he's got John the Baptist as a witness. Doesn't stop there. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining uh, lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than John's for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. The very works that I am doing bear witness about me and that the Father has sent me. So he's got John the Baptist. Now he's got the works that he accomplishes. Verse 37, and the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. And you do not have his words abiding in you. So now he's got John the Baptist, he's got the works that he does, and he has God the Father testifying about him. One more. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. So he's got John the Baptist, he's got the works that he does, he has God the Father, and now he even has the scriptures that testify to the truth about who Jesus is. I think that's more than enough witness. And they would not believe they still would not receive the testimony of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, again, this is a reminder to us that no matter how faithfully and persistently and truthfully you proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, there will always be those who don't receive it. The Bible makes clear that not all will be saved. There will be those who reject Jesus Christ and rebel all the way to the end. Not all will receive the gospel. And you can share it with them clearly, concisely. You can sit down with people and give them evidence to the resurrection and the life of Jesus Christ. You can engage in these conversations, offering apologetics, trying to reason with a person to the logical existence of God and to the validity and assurance of the Bible. You can present them Christ Jesus in all of his glory and his saving splendor as the savior of the world, and they'll reject the offer of salvation, and they'll walk away completely unchanged. It happens every day. I mean, even think about in Jesus' day. They stood in the presence of Christ, God in the flesh. They stood before him. They saw the things that he did. They heard the way that he teached, taught. Thought you had me, didn't you? <laughs> they heard the way that he taught. They saw the miracles that he performed. And they still died in their sins. There will always be those who reject the gospel. Listen, I know how this feels. I've been on both sides of the coin. See, I grew up in a household of faith, knowing full well what the Bible said about sin and salvation. I had parents that loved me well, that co constantly presented the gospel to me, shared Jesus Christ with me, told me of my need for a savior. But for years, I, I wandered in my sin and my rebellion. I lived the way that I wanted to. I was totally unchanged from all of those years of gospel proclamation. Man, God in his grace saw fit to impart his spirit to me, opening my eyes to the glorious reality of Jesus Christ and my desperate need for this Savior. And praise God for his grace. It is by his spirit I have been changed. I have been brought from death to life. So all of those gospel seeds that were planted by my parents and my family members for all of those years didn't go without bearing fruit. God brought them to life. 
to on the other side of the coin, I also have many family members and friends who I've shared the gospel with over and over again. And for all of my evangelistic efforts, for every gospel proclamation, for every plea to repent and turn to Christ, they remain unchanged. They rebel. There's no fruit of regeneration. There's no evidence that their hearts have been changed. It doesn't matter how hard I preach Christ or how much I present the glory of Jesus to them. It doesn't matter the sense of urgency or desperation in which I preach the gospel. Nothing happens. They're unchanged. They continue to reject Jesus and live in their sin and rebellion. And I know for many of you here this morning, you have family members and friends that are also lost. It's easy to get discouraged. It's tempting to say, why would I continue? Well, this dude doesn't want anything to do with me. I've preached to him over and over and over again, and he wants nothing to do with Jesus. Why bother? Why keep sharing the gospel? Well, just look no further than this conversation. I mean, even looking at this conversation with Nicodemus, we know that at this point, Nicodemus wasn't saved. By the end of this conversation, he is not a believer. But praise God for the rest of the gospel of John and Nicodemus's story. If you read through the entire gospel of John, you see in John 7, Nicodemus is defending Jesus before the Pharisees. They're trying to apprehend Jesus and convict him as a guilty man before they even give him a fair trial. And Nicodemus stands up and says, hey, we, don't we usually give a man a trial first? And then they're like, bro, are you from Galilee too? Well, you didn't switch sides, Nicodemus. You didn't jump ship. And then we get to John chapter 19, and we see that Nicodemus is now helping Joseph of Arimathea prepare Jesus' body for burial. See, a drastic change has happened in the heart and life of Nicodemus from John 3 to John 19. And that is just a reminder that God is faithful to keep preaching the gospel, even when it seems pointless, even when it seems that person won't repent and they won't believe. God is at work constantly. That is how the lost come to salvation, through the work of the Spirit, through our faithful gospel proclamation. Romans 10, 17 says that faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Preach the gospel. Be encouraged. Nicodemus is proof that God works. I'm proof that gospel proclamation and the Holy Spirit works. Each of you in here this morning that call yourself believers are proof that God works. Somewhere along the way, you heard the gospel presented to you, and God did the work of bringing you from life to death, giving you this new birth and a newfound affection for Jesus Christ, the one who you were once dead to. And be obedient, be faithful, continue to share the gospel. We continue on, verse 12 says, Jesus says this to Nicodemus, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? You see, there's a logical order for Jesus' argument here. There's a progression from the simpler things to the more complex things. Jesus says, if you can't believe or comprehend even these earthly things, how could you believe if I told you heavenly things? Now, what does Jesus mean here by earthly things. 
Obviously, it makes sense to look at the conversation and what has already already been said, so we have a little bit of context here. So Jesus has been sharing with Nicodemus about the necessity of the new birth, right? He's given them this this truth, and he's given it to them in earthly terms. He's used the analogy of being born again, right? That's a natural understanding. That's a natural concept, right? The new birth, being born again. We all understand what it means to be born, right? That's an earthly concept. Not only that, then Jesus gives them the illustration of the wind, again, an earthly concept, something we should easily understand. Now, although the new birth is one that is of a divine nature, it is an elementary truth for entry into the kingdom. So what Jesus has done and what he means by these earthly things is he started with something that is a foundational and basic truth, to be born again. That's where it starts. That's where it begins. And if Nicodemus couldn't understand this principal concept, the need for a new heart to be born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, to have his heart and his soul changed, how could Christ move on to much loftier matters? If he doesn't get that, he'll never understand the Trinity. He'll never understand the things of the kingdom, the perfect union of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. How could Jesus, if he doesn't understand this foundational, fundamental truth, how could Jesus move on to loftier matters with this man? So that's why Jesus starts with the foundation of being born again. Because apart from that, Nicodemus won't get it. He won't understand these things. He certainly will never see Jesus Christ as he ought to, apart from the work of the Spirit. And again, at this point in our conversation, he hasn't been born again. God hadn't done the work of changing his heart. So he could not accept or receive the testimony that Christ was giving him. He would only reject it. He's unable to see Jesus as Lord and Savior. At this point, he only sees him as a really great rabbi, a man who can do some wonderful things, who teaches really, really well. Again, brothers and sisters, I want you to know something glorious. Jesus is more than a rabbi. He's more than just a teacher. Which leads me to my final point, point number three. We see the deliverance of the Son. The deliverance of the Son. Verses 13 through 15. And it reads, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Listen, only someone who has been to heaven can tell you what it's like and how to get there. And as human beings, apart from death, guess what? We don't have the ability to visit heaven. You can't just book a trip there through your travel agent. Say, I'm going to go to heaven, take a few pictures, do some sightseeing, I'll be back next Wednesday. It's not possible. We can't just decide that we're ready to enter into heaven. It is outside of human possibility as those who live within the confines of time and space. But Jesus tells Nicodemus something here. He says, I have the authority to speak about heavenly things, and here's why. Because heaven was Jesus' home. He wasn't like Nicodemus. He wasn't a man just born of earth who had resided here his entire life. No, Jesus had resided in heaven from eternity past. 
and perfect communion with God the Father and the Holy Spirit as the second person of the Trinity. That's why he has authority to speak about these heavenly things, because that's his home. Something beautiful happening here that I want us to see in this verse. Verse 13, Jesus says, it is he who descended from heaven. You see, this is where we see the loving mission of Jesus Christ, that he descended from heaven. This is a humbling reminder that Jesus came to us. That he willingly laid aside his heavenly privileges, leaving behind the glories of perfect communion with God the Father without compromising any of his deity, any of his divinity. So he laid it all aside and came to save and ransom a people for himself. You see, though we had accrued 100% of the debt and the guilt, Jesus Christ did 100% of the work. He didn't do part of the work of redemption and reconciliation and then say, oh, you need to do the rest. He did all of the work and the most glorious display of loving grace and kindness. God comes to us through the form of his son, Jesus Christ. We didn't have to work our way to him. And we never could have. He's done all of the work to redeem us. And praise God for that reality this morning. See, in verse 13, Jesus here, he refers to himself as the Son of Man. And that's a title that appears 13 times in John's gospel, and it's Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself. And that phrase, that title comes from Daniel chapter 7. If you recall, Daniel has this vision where he sees one like a son of man. And the son of man is given all universal authority by God. He's given dominion over all people, and he's given this everlasting kingdom. So when Jesus uses the title son of man, this would have been one that the Jews would have been familiar with. In fact, we know that Nicodemus would have been familiar with this title because he had studied the text from front to back. So Jesus is telling him, listen, when you read the scroll of Daniel and it talks about the Son of Man, guess what, Nicodemus, that's me. The one who has all authority in heaven and on earth, that is me, the one who sits before you. Here Jesus begins pointing Nicodemus to the glorious and greatest reality. He is making clear to this man, I am more than just a rabbi. I am more than just a gifted teacher operating under the assistance of God. I am the son of man, the one who has all authority. I am the one who the prophets have spoken about. This is the promised seed, the savior of the world, the one you've been waiting for for all of these generations, the savior and Messiah that's been promised since the garden. It is me who sits before you here today. You're in the very presence of God. Brothers and sisters, this is what Nicodemus needed in all of his searching. And in fact, that's what all of us need as well. We don't need any more teachers. We needed a savior and God provided him. And praise God that Jesus is more than a great rabbi. He's the great redeemer. Amen. Amen. See, here we begin to see the saving glory of Jesus Christ. Let's look at verses 14 and 15. See, here Jesus tells Nicodemus, this is why I've come. It says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so, so, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. These are magnificent verses. 
And they so wonderfully place us at the doorstep of John 3.16. What a beautiful transition this will make to our text next week. You see, Jesus is giving us the purpose for which he has come. To fulfill the Lord's plan of salvation. To sacrifice himself, making good on all of God's promises to his people. See here, Jesus says that Moses lifted up the serpent. And as the serpent was lifted up, Jesus too must be lifted up. You see, he's pointing Nicodemus to the glorious reality that is to come. He is pointing towards his crucifixion. But he does so in a way that Nicodemus will understand because he points him again to the Old Testament and a story that he should have been familiar with. And this story comes from Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9. You don't have to turn there. You can write this down. Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9. And what happens there is that God's people were wandering through the wilderness. They were journeying to the promised land. And along the way, go figure, God's people begin to crumble, <clears throat> grumble and complain. Now imagine us grumbling and complaining. That never happens, right? I never grumble or complain. It never happens, right? On the way, they grumble and they complain, and so they sinned against God. And so God sends these fiery serpents to attack them, to kill them. And so they go to Moses and they say, Moses, please pray to God. Tell him to take away these serpents. So Moses intercedes on their behalf. He prays. He talks to the Lord. And the Lord tells him, look, I want you to make this serpent. And then I want you to take it and place it before the people. And when they look to it, they'll be saved. They'll be cured of their snake bites. Anyone who looks to this serpent will live and be saved. All they had to do was simply look at this serpent. So Moses, that's what he does. He makes this serpent out of bronze. He raises it up. And the people that are suffering from their venomous snake bites, once they look at it, they're cured. They're saved. They live. And just as Moses lifted up that serpent, Jesus is telling us that he too must be lifted up. Listen, don't overlook that short four-letter word there, must. Jesus says he must. That indicates that Jesus' death was absolutely necessary for the salvation of sinners. It's part of God's plan. It was necessary to the plan of redemption. It's not just a nice little addition. It's not something God did to just, just do it. Somebody had to pay the penalty that you and I accrued. We all owed this debt of guilt. And Romans 6.23 tells us what? The wages of sin is death. Somebody had to pay that price. And it was Jesus Christ for our freedom, for our forgiveness. So Jesus, what does he do? He willingly takes to the cross, suffering and enduring the brutality of this crucifixion, totally obedient to the will of the Father. He's laid down his life. And see, just as those Israelites looked to that bronze serpent, all those who look to Jesus Christ in faith will live. And not just live here and now, but those who look to Christ receive eternal and abundant life. Brothers and sisters, the new life that a man must possess before he enters the kingdom is only found in Jesus. Somebody say amen. See, Nicodemus needed to look no further. He simply needed to look to the Savior that sat right in front of him. It is in him that we have life. It is the son who delivers us from the penalty of sin 
and death. It is by his perfect righteousness being imputed to us that we are fit to enter into the presence of God. Nothing else will do. See, ironically, even the story of this bronze serpent dismantles Nicodemus's works-based system. See, Jesus was so intentional in the things that he said. Even this story crushes Nicodemus's belief that he must do something to be saved. See, the Lord tells the Israelites, simply look. He doesn't tell them they have to perform any acts of righteousness of their own. He just says, look and be saved. Look and be saved. They didn't have to do anything. Friends, it is the same for all of us this morning to simply look to Jesus. And when we do, we are delivered from sin's deadly consequences, not by anything that we do. It is through faith alone in Christ Jesus. See, as we close our time together this morning, I want to invite everybody in this room to do something. Something that's not very hard to do. I want to invite you all to look. Looking doesn't take a whole lot of effort, does it? It's pretty easy. It's a pretty simple task. But see, unfortunately, like Nicodemus, many of us look to ourselves. We look to the world and those around us to save and to satisfy us. We're often looking around for what we think we're missing. I want to invite you this morning to Look to Christ, the all-sufficient, glorious Savior that he is. Brothers and sisters, if you're in here this morning and you're a believer and you know this Christ Jesus, why would you look anywhere else? If you're a believer, I want to encourage you this morning to fix your gaze upon Jesus Christ. When you wake up in the morning, look to Jesus. Throughout the day, look to Jesus. Before you lay down at night, look to Jesus. If God is so gracious to let you awake from your slumber the next morning, make a beeline to the cross and look to Jesus. Over and over and over again. Brothers and sisters, he is our hope and our peace. Look to him to sustain you. If you're in here this morning and you're an unbeliever, I'm sure that Someone in this room may not have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. My advice to you would be much the same, to look to Jesus for the very first time and to surrender all that you have and all that you are to him. He is good. He is faithful. He is an incredibly capable Savior. And all that is deficient in us, he satisfies as the Son of God. What the world can't give you, he can give you eternally. And that is life, abundant life, forgiveness, redemption. Look to him and be saved. It's that simple. Look to Jesus and live. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Thank you that we can look to your son, Jesus, and that he has accomplished all of the work of salvation. We simply need rest upon what he has already done. Simply look to him in faith. God, I pray for all of those under the sound of my voice this morning. 
for believer and unbeliever alike. And we would all look to Jesus and trust in him, for he is a sufficient Savior. He is more than a teacher, the Son of God come to save humanity. Father, I pray that those that don't know that this morning would know that now. By the power of your spirit being at work in this place, God, don't let them leave the same way they came in this morning. God, I pray that your spirit would lead them to surrender, to confess, to repent, and to look to Jesus and be saved. Father, help us to honor you with the time we have left together this morning. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.